The Greg Scheinman Podcast is brought to you by Inns Group Insurance. Inns Group Insurance and Risk Management. Inns Group is ensuring success. And also, Rose Studios, endurance, strength, and mobility equals perfect fitness. Visit rosestudios.com for more information. On the Greg Scheinman Podcast today, we have Sean Serkiel. Creativity and innovation in the kitchen has made Sean one of Austin's most coveted chefs and restaurateurs. He is the visionary and entrepreneur behind Parkside Projects, his restaurant group that owns and operates Parkside Restaurant, Backspace, Olive and June, Bullfight, 800 Congress, and a number of exciting projects that he now has in the works. I was drawn to Sean by his devotion to smart, sustainable cooking, commitment to family and fitness, and his drive and ambition to build great restaurants and businesses. We sat down and had a chance to talk about what inspires him, the challenges he's faced along the way and continues to face in expanding his businesses, finding his balance in life and where he's looking to take himself both personally and professionally in the future. This was a lot of fun to do. I'm going to apologize up front for some of the audio issues as we were not in the best location, but the content is great and wanted to put it out there for you guys to enjoy. And hopefully you'll be uh, as inspired as I was and check out Sean's places when you're in Austin. Here we go. So, Sean, tell me a little bit about how you got got your start here in Austin. Um, my parents, uh, my dad's from the Bronx, and my mom is from Austin, Texas. And then in the 70s, they met in New Mexico uh, on a commune. And then after a few years in the commune, well, we moved to Austin. Uh, but before that, my mom and dad had a vegetarian restaurant in Kansas City. It was very well known. Um, my mom was kind of at the forefront of cooking with vegetables and doing everything from scratch. Um, the way the story is told is a lot of the kind of L.A. chefs would fly into Kansas City to work at this restaurant for a few months and then go back and be the cook for the Beach Boys and Michael Jackson and kind of all this stuff. And after, the, after a few years, it kind of reached their point and they were going to either go to New York or come back home to Austin, uh, where my mom's family is from. And I, I think... They made a decision based on the weather, based on what New York was like in the 70s. And, and you know, and, and so they came back to Austin. And growing up here, we lived on a small farm um, right outside of Austin. Um, you know, now it's a city proper, but back then it was the country. And we, we had goats and chickens and, and, and cows. And my, my parents would, you know, they'd milk the cows for, for, for the house. We'd make our own, my dad would make our own butter. Um, the big change for us when we moved to Austin was whether we'd start eating eggs. And we did just because there was nothing to eat. Um, and so, you know, from the garden to the animals, it was, it was pretty special, um, kind of unique in Austin in that time. So. so restaurants and food have always been in your, in your blood and, and in your family. When did, when did you decide that it was going to be what you were going to do more serious um i had always worked in restaurants it was kind of the um the unifying thing of my childhood i i got in trouble a lot i tended to kind of be very rambunctious um i didn't think school was my favorite place i guess you could say and but i always worked and i always worked in restaurants uh, and played sports and cooking just was kind of a natural Kind of evolution, whether it was when we were entertaining kids from overseas, I would be cooking with them and, and all the different styles. And it just was always the constant in my life. And I was working at a restaurant called Martin Brothers, um, which uh, was kind of a, a cafe as a part of the original Whole Foods, actually. Um, my mom started the um, co op here in Austin, you know, 
back in the sixties and whole foods was a byproduct of that. And then, um, they had a cafe called Martin brothers and they did a restaurant on the drag and I was working there and they had a real chef come from, from, you know, from LA who worked in New York and overseas. And he was the first one that ever articulated that, that it could be a profession, that it could be something real. And I kind of just jumped from that place forward and started working, um, in a more serious way. It started to have purpose, right? So instead of it just being about, you know, having a good day at work and going out, it became about trying to achieve something. And at that point, I went to the CIA in upstate New York, and I started cooking all over the world, New York and San Francisco, Napa and Phoenix, and for kind of a lot of unique chefs and, and, and places. Um, what was especially fun is this is at the time before food kind of exploded in this country. So a lot of the chefs who are now have 20, 30, 40, 50 restaurants or what it is, or we're still in the kitchen. And so it was pretty special and a unique time frame. Um, when I was at the CIA, um, in the Hudson Valley, you know, it, it's very much about being a part of the food, uh, where it comes from and how it grows. And so it was kind of a natural evolution to how I grew up, um, being a part of the farm and, and, and kind of growing all of our food there. So it was really unique. Um, and special um, when food kind of grew um, in this country I was cooking at the right places the right times and it kind of all established itself and then when I moved from New York to California you know I mean, Napa was like it was unbelievable there was nothing like what was happening in, in California at the time in terms of the quality of the produce and the lifestyle and what it meant and to be in Napa at that time in the early 2000s was pretty awesome so then you got here Yes. Okay. And that's actually a funny story. Coming like my adult life of coming back here, um, I was on my way from. After, I can't even remember now whether I was on my way back to New York, or back to California, or to go work in Boston or some variation thereof. And I went to a friend's house just to have, you know, have a party to say hello to everybody, all my mm-hmm. friends. And there was, a, there was a girl that I met, and so I'm like, well, I'll make her dinner. And so I invited her over for dinner the next day. I was only going to be in town for a week. And, you know, we've been married 15 years and I'm still in Austin. So that's how I ended up staying in Austin. Before then, I was traveling around and cooking, kind of growing and learning and, and, and enjoying uh, all the different opportunities that established and kind of worked out. But mm-hmm. that's how I came back to Austin. <laughs> and the scene in Austin has grown and, and exploded tremendously in the time that you've come back. And then It's been unbelievable. I, when I came back, um, I... I, I opened a restaurant uh, and ran a restaurant for a little while. Um, I did some consulting work at Ichi, worked with Tyson and, and, and Phillips Beer and Daryl and all the people over there. It was pretty unbelievable. And then I had an opportunity to start with Parkside. And, um, you know, Austin has always been its own kind of cultural, iconic center. And the food has also been that way. And there's been a real awakening in Austin and in every city. I mean, it's true in Houston and Dallas and you know, now it's everywhere, but it really felt like there was this explosion of kind of energy and talent for a while in Austin. Um, and getting a chance to be a part of it with, and see it all its growth has been unbelievable. Tell me a little bit about that, that as you said, an opportunity presented itself to start, to start Parkside. Um, and, and that risk, that leap, if you will, to go mm-hmm. from, from cooking and working with other people in their establishments and to going out on your own and and, and that process at the time. Um, right. were, you, were you married at that time? Um, I had, I was just getting married. Okay. Um, 
I just, I actually, let's see. So I had, I had managed to take over a restaurant prior, which was my first big push. And that was when we just gotten married and a old chef that I knew wanted to kind of leave the business. And so he allowed me to take over his restaurant. And I was so headstrong um, that I was going to do anything for that opportunity. And I kind of sacrificed everything, both personally and professionally and with landlord, you know, anything to make it work. And the food was, was amazing. Um, people still talk about it to this day, some of the dishes we had, but, but it didn't have the success that I'd hoped. Um, and I, I kind of took a break and I learned a lot that no matter how good your ideas are, no matter how much you work, you've got to have some things in place. And so I went back to kind of working for others, doing consulting, traveling a little bit. And I was working at Uchi and I had found a space on 6th Street which, uh, if you're familiar with Austin, is kind of the middle of the chaos. And there's bars and music, and it's always been known as a... It's always been known as kind of a... Uh, there's this moniker where they call it Dirty Six, and a lot of people think they call it Dirty Six based on, um, based on all the party. Mm-hmm. But it's really not called that. It's called Dirty Six because traditionally it was where all the different ethnicities that weren't white went. So that's where all the Lebanese businesses, all the American businesses, all the Hispanic businesses, all the Jewish stores, everything else. That's where it all was. Um, and uh, so it's always been called that. And so there was this uh, old business and family that had kind of, it was a combination of a brother and sister, ex-husband, and all these different things, and they wanted out. And so there is an old steakhouse in Austin called Dan McCluskey's, and it is four or five blocks from the Four Seasons, one block from the Driscoll Hotel, and, excuse me, and um, three blocks from the Intercontinental. Or two blocks, and it, you know they they were willing to kind of take some chances with it. I put together some funding, had a couple of connections, and so I went to all my restaurant and connections in town, and I brought it to them. And they're all really successful guys who fund restaurants and businesses and real estate. And they go, "You're crazy. You know, it's it it makes no sense. It's it's like it, you know, look at where you are. Who's going to ever buy food there?" And so I had, a, I had a friend who was working for this private equity investor in Boston and Florida, and he flies in on his private jet as a favor, only as a favor. And he walks in, he drives in from the airport, he parks at the corner of 6th and San Jacinto, and he goes, how far is it to the Four Seasons? And I pointed. And he goes, how far is it to the Intercontinental? And pointed the other way. And he goes, that's the Driscoll, right? The old, old expensive hotel in Twin Block. And he goes, you'll be fine. And he left. And he loaned us the money. <laughs> and that's the only time he's ever been to the restaurant. And he was he he was willing to both see something that I had seen and also that nobody at the time in Austin could see, which was that downtown was really vi- going to be vibrant. It was really going to take off. And, you know, if, if it could withstand these hotels and these expensive hotels for years that had been there, then really it's just kind of waiting to explode. And that was in 2006 or seven. We got the space. We opened at the beginning of 2008. So it's nine years this year for Parkside. Um, and it's just, it's been incredibly fortunate. We've been very lucky. The business is doing great. Um, I still have all my same friends that are in the 
industry still tell me they don't understand how I made it. I'm crazy. And of course now, if you go downtown Austin, there's tons of restaurants downtown and there's, um, but we were the first one that really embraced the street. You know, we have all glass windows with a bright light. So it's like a beacon on the corner and you really feel like you're in an urban environment. You feel like you're somewhere exciting and a part of something. Um, up until Parkside, downtown, you tried to block it with curtains. You sat away from the corners so you didn't feel like you were a part of something. You were hiding. And, um, but at Parkside, we joke, you get dinner and a show. So, Well, somebody has to be first. That's right. right? And, and you know, that's the, the testament to the, the, the willingness to be first right? and, and to go out there and, and do that. You mentioned after, the first, after your first endeavor and not going so well and prior to, to Parkside that there were some things you needed to, to learn and, fi- and, and figure out right. you know, in, in there too. Um, and now at this point, you've not only succeeded with Parkside, but you've continued to scale Parkside projects and your other, right. and your other ventures. Um, what's the, you know, what, what are you doing or how do you feel about, again, going about scaling your concepts and, and, and growing them? Because you can't be everywhere you know, every time. Um, and, and the mindset behind quality control, how you grow, how you expand, and, and your concepts are all different. They are. So it's not, this is not replicable where it's one concept and we're going to do it over and over again, which I, I'm always so extremely impressed with. Uh, so how do you conceptualize and then how do you say, okay, I'm going to make this a bit, this is a business. Mm-hmm. Um, our, our inspiration for food comes from what we like to eat what we like to cook and also what inspires us that's not in the field. Um, so after Parkside, we opened the Backspace, which was Austin's first Neapolitan pizzeria. Um, it's going on six years and we've been incredibly fortunate. We get, you know, it, it gets talked about nationally all the time and any type of, of, of kind of award or, or article about pizza or about As Austin. It should, it's amazing. Well, you can walk there you, but, from the hotel and the boys love it. And I'm like, okay. All that stuff. Mm-hmm. But, but you know, it, it was, it was literally what we like to eat. You know, what do you do for in the restaurants? We cook family meal for all of our staff every day. Well, we do pizza. I do pizza at home for the kids and there wasn't what we were looking for. So we created it. Um, after, uh, the backspace, we had an opportunity to take over a building and I mean, can we make handmade pastas and we make them every day, you know, with great texture and, and the way that I grew up learning from my time in New York and, and all that I've done, there really wasn't that in Austin. You know, there was dried pasta. Maybe the fresh pasta would be uh, just like a stuffed ravioli, but not homemade bucatini and, 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 and a semolina blend. And, you know, all these beautiful and legal texture things. And so at all in June, we had an opportunity to create this environment based on, once again, something that we like to eat we like to be a part of and, and, and give it its own sense of place. Um, and then I've been traveling for the last few years and I try to hide every year for a year, a week or two. And I go to Spain because I just, since a kid, I've loved it. And uh, bullfighting in Mexico is kind of my first introduction. And, and so I, I've been, I've been traveling there for the past, I don't even know how many years now. And I go in February or March and I just go away for a week and I just drink and eat wine and visit vineyards and museums and art. Um, I keep trying to talk to my wife and letting me stay. Um, depending on the day, she sometimes says, would say yes or no. Um, and so that's how the inspiration for Bullfight came about. And so, you know, once again, it was this, what I like to eat, what I like to drink. And then the secondary part of that, which is the business aspect, becomes a little bit more um, complicated like everything. And we've been incredibly fortunate to have a great team in place 
that has both grown and changed throughout the years, but always keep kind of some core values of, of you know, making good decisions, treating people well. The goal is to make both our staff and our guests feel emotionally uh, fulfilled, and it has allowed the financial part of it to follow in line. Um, as a company, we're, we're fairly unique. All employees have healthcare if they want it, including dishwashers, prep cooks. Um, I always joke until you've you know, heard, a, heard a dishwasher arguing about what their copay should be. You don't really know what's great about this country, you know. Um, and in all of those types of decisions, whether it's through wine, through the bar, through staffing, it's kind of taken with this mentality of what's the best thing for our guests? How can we make the experience better? How can we make the experience better for our staff? How can we do better food? How can we introduce them to more farms? And, and it keeps layering and layering and layering it. And you make all these good decisions. And, and in my experience, people figure it out. They find a way to appreciate it. Even if they can't put their finger on it or explain why they like something, they have this innate sense to feel of, 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 of wholeness. And that comes from that kind of emotional fulfillment. What's your process on finding those those team members? Because you know, one of the hardest things to do in in, in a business and scaling a business certainly is finding good people is finding good people, you know, and right. then certainly being able to to nurture them and, and 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 have them to really support the business. What what's your process in that? That obviously you've been successful with with loyalty and being able to grow that way. I'm a firm believer in that you find people that work hard and care. Whatever it is in life, if you find people that work hard and care, because those are the two things that you can't teach. You can't teach someone to care about themselves, or you, let me rephrase that, you can't teach people to care about those around them, you can't keep, teach them to care about guests, um, and you can't teach people to work hard. If they, they either do or they don't. And so we tend to find people that work hard and that care at, at, at any level and position, and then we put faith in them and give them the freedom to grow. And whether that's in cooking, in the kitchen, is you know starting off with um, cooks who have no experience, um, to the front of the house where we'll take on younger staff and put them in a position of management and leadership before many other restaurants will. And it's really based on the theory that you know you put people in a position of success. You let them find the ones who want to do good, who care, who work hard, and they'll put in the effort to fill in the gaps. Um, we have, I think, 150 cooks right now, or 100, excuse me, 150 employees in the restaurant right now, and we need two cooks in the whole company, maybe one hostess and two servers. Um, I have staff that's been with us for five, six, seven years. I have, uh, we generally hire cooks with no experience, with the theory that we can train them how to become good cooks. And I have a couple staff members now who are management who started with us six, seven years ago, left and came back and vice versa. And it's uniquely special to see someone who came in as a kid, literally a kid, um, with barely an experience and, and what it all meant to now be, you know, married with their own kids, teaching others about cleanliness, organization and, and, and how to treat food and how to treat guests and coworkers when, you know, seven, eight years ago all they cared about was going out and throwing down and hopefully getting up the next day so so but at the end of the day these are your projects and they're your, and they're your vision um, right um, and empowering and delegating is a, and sort of supporting that team 
is there a struggle or how do you balance, you know, empowering and, and, and delegating and bringing these people up with also ensuring that the vision that you have for each one of these distinctly dis- different concepts is, is executed? Right. Today we're meeting in, an op- in your office. Right. We're not in a kitchen. We're not, we're not at a restaurant. So how do you, how do you oversee that and, and how much time are you involved in each place at this point to, to, to manage, to manage, to manage it all? So, um, the joke that I always say is that if you see me at one of the restaurants, it's like the kids. I'm at the restaurant that's in trouble. And so um, it's not exactly the case, but it's just like kids. They get them, whatever is having the most challenges gets the most attention, whether that's a costing issue, a staffing issue, or whatever else. Um, but I'm fortunate that at all the restaurants, the systems of how we think about food, how we think of and build our wine lists, how we think and build our bar program and our cocktail program. They are all organized in a way where people can fill in and they can grow inside of it and they get the flexibility to make decisions that can impact their day in an interesting and unique way while still falling in line with what we have established as kind of the goal, the culture, and who we are. And at this point, a lot of the time we talk about the word culture in the restaurants because that's ultimately what we're talking about. You know, it's not just how we treat guests. It's not just how we think about food. It's all of it. And, you know, as you say, how do you manage it all? And in some ways you can't, you can't micromanage it. You can't ask managers to micromanage it because it's just so overwhelming. And so we always try to focus on the word culture. Um, people always have teased me for years because I'll, I'll like say that, you know, these silly sayings all the time, you know, we, not me, uh, do it nice, do it twice. Right. Um, you know, we'll make, we'll make the guest happy. And, and you know, we, we just, we have these ones, we joke about them. I write them down every once in a while. I threaten to put them on a poster, but I always talk my way out of it. Um, you know, you, 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 the way you teach cooks, the way you hold servers accountable, when you put pressure, when you back away. And so we, we talk about these things over and over again so that that culture runs through everything and so that becomes a tree branch for kind of everything else to build off of and so I don't need to manage micromanage a cook and a chef because they know that ultimately the way you think about a situation will be impacted by that culture and they as long as they make those decisions and manage their day and their systems and their operations inside of that culture the rest of it becomes less important um I use uh, John Wooden's books for first-time managers, and it was very odd. You start reading all these uh, leadership books or business uh, coaching books or all these different ones, and they all end up with some variations of the same theory of how you hold people accountable, the words that you use. And it was fascinating when I had the realization that so many people and companies and businesses and sports teams utilize this very, very similar kind of organizations and verbiage, even if it's technically different, right? It's not the same to teach basketball as it is to teach how to cook or how to manage a, a symphony or, or how to plan on running a Fortune 500 company. Sure. But, but it's, all very, it's all very similar. It's the same things of creating a culture, creating a system, holding people accountable, and then encouraging them to grow. Absolutely. It's, and I was, I was smiling because when we first got here, the first thing you were doing was opening up a box of, that had books in it. And I was about to ask you, are you, you know, do you read on leadership? Do you read on management? Because it sounds like, you know, these, these are skills, obviously, that take time to develop. And they're certainly different, again, front of house, back of house. 
Yeah. And I spend a lot of time, uh, you know, with, with our with our firm talking about culture because when you go from 50 people when I like when I joined our, our firm and then became in partner there we were 50 people and doing X amount of, of business right. and fast forward seven years later and you're 110 wow. you know people um, how you run those organizations is drastically different and the kind of, you're doing a lot of hiring there's a lot of culture collide you know in there too and how you how you get everybody on on the same on the same page um, in there, is that something that has come come naturally to you? Kind of that uh, managing people, you know, getting out from just the the cooking aspect of it to saying, okay, I'm going to be more of a, a visionary, more of a leader, you know. In this, I've been um, I've been incredibly uh, fortunate to have great mentors, both as a kid from my, you know, whether it's from my parents and grandparents through sports. Uh, through kitchens as well to kind of really see the right way to make decisions and when and, and, and what it kind of means uh, through these through these mentors and they all had different things they taught or you know they they would focus on and like anything you start to pick them up uh, my grandfather had a garage um, and he used to always tell the story uh, uh, um they would write on the gas tank your name. And so, you know, hello, Mr. Johnson, hello, Mr. Steve, whatever it was. And so they would open up your gas and they fill it up and they would write your name the very first time. And then every time you came back, whoever was pumping your gas always knew your name. So, you know, in the 50s, they literally, you'd be driving down a random gas station. You went there once last year, they would open your gas tank and it would be somebody completely different and they would call you by name. And, you know, people would just, they'd still tell stories about this, the old timers that are still alive. And, you know, what it really says is that people want to feel important. They want to feel that you care and remember about them emotionally, that connection. Um, you know, I had a, a, a chef I worked for in, in California who um, would just talk about ingredients and, you know, how important it was, this connection to the ground and to the farmers and to the ranches. When you wasted something or did a bad job, it, it wasn't that you were wasting money. It was the skill and time and effort that the farm put into it, that the, that the rancher took and the honor that it took to do and create this, these vegetables or this, to grow these cows. And so it wasn't just about wasting it was about not giving the right type of attention to detail to honor what the food was the hard work that went into it so you know we became very conscious of everything you want to do everything the best that you can i had a chef who was in the marines it was very intense about cleanliness and organization you know cleanliness organization over and over again and then not wasting because of being in the marines everything had to be purposeful and so you know these same things he told me about you don't peel onions over trash cans because if you drop it in the trash can you have, excuse me, you have to throw it away right things like that and so it's the same you know we, we treat, think of food that way and then I went, I went and worked in a uh, Japanese kitchen where everything is purposeful and so the opposite way you, you start the opposite way you're going to finish so that it's seamless the way you move fish across you know the way you the way you set yourself up at the beginning of the day is so that it's almost zen-like. It's efficient to finish. 
And so, you know, all these things of, you know, making good decisions about onion peels. Is it the same about an onion peel or a truffle or a hundred dollar bill or a thousand dollar bottle of wine? It's the same about, you know, honoring where it came from, treating people right, making them feel important. Um, and then having a plan in place so that you can move in an efficient, clean, positive way throughout your day. Um, and you know, that's just all in the kitchen. That doesn't even include all the different lessons I was fortunate to learn in, in sports and from teachers and everything else. So. Let's talk a little bit about work and life balance in here. <laughs> well, that's hard. It, it's, it, absolutely. And, and we talked a little bit before we, we kind of started this and obviously you're married and you have two children and you have your business, which is another child and family all, right. all in its own right and hundreds of people that, that are now on that team as well. Um, how do you manage the work-life balance, the time for yourself? We talked a little bit about fitness. I mean, the routine. Be, and that was a real uh, figuring out uh, the outside of the work was a really hard thing for me. Um, I always found as a kid, I like many people who end up in restaurants, had some drug, alcohol issues, and I used to smoke two packs a day. And, um, work was essentially my salvation. That's how I got clean from drugs. You know, I just went to work and it was an easy solution to kind of work around the country and work in, in kitchens and put in it. You're rewarded for your skill. You're rewarded for your hard work. You know, you're there all the time. It was pretty, pretty special. And I started working more and more in restaurants and met my wife and she just was used to it and we were fine. Um, and we had opened Parkside and I, I'm trying to think of what year it was at this point. Maybe it was the second year or the third year of Parkside. I was, you know, at this point I was, I, my body was so hard on my body. I'm working 18 days, 18 hours a day, six days a week, smoking two packs of cigarettes a day. Um, one of my cooks took a picture of me walking up the stairs and I was literally walking up the stairs like my grandfather who was in his nineties who died. Like it was, I just looked old. I was unhealthy. I, I think I weighed like 145 pounds. I looked like I was on drugs and I wasn't, I just was working so much. Um, and we had a front of the house manager who was running the restaurant who had three kids die of a heart attack. You know, I'm just a, I'm just a cook and a kid and married trying to have kids. I didn't know, you know, what the hell's going on in life. And it was so emotional, both having been asked to deal with this and deal with the, the emotional ramifications for my business, my staff, my own personal friendship and all of it. Um, it was two weeks before Christmas. Christmas Day, I quit smoking. hadn't 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 had a cigarette since. Um, went from two packs to none, and I started trying to make some positive changes in my life in terms of how I slept, how I worked out, things like this. And so um, I had a friend who had a CrossFit gym, and so. Um, I tried that and at the very beginning it was too much. And so I had another friend who had a personal training gym who basically as a favor just said, come on in. And I traded him for food and wine and he would train me three days a week. And it basically, you know, it started me in a new way. Um, I started getting up with my kids, which I hadn't been doing. I, you know, I wasn't out at the bars till four in the morning anymore or at home on the porch. Um, and then that kind of started off and then it became kind of a challenge for both me personally and for the restaurants. My wife had always been very fit. Um, and as a kid, I was very athletic 
And so I started working out and you know doing CrossFit. I started actually paying. We would pay staff to quit smoking. You know, I'll tell you, I gave you five hundred bucks to quit. Just things like this. Anything we could do. Um, we started hiring uh, friends who would have a yoga studio that could do yoga classes. We hired a friend who had another friend who had a, a gym to run uh, PT classes for the restaurant for a while. You know, we're trying to get everyone involved. Just as kind of my enthusiasm sure. and kind of trying to figure it out. Um, and you start to see how hard it is to get everyone else in, in, involved in something outside of work. It's amazing how you can get a whole shit moving together in one thing and then it becomes 9.30 in the morning on a Tuesday and it's much, much different. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't all have the same epiphany at, no, at the same time. <laughs> no, no, they do not. Um, and so um, that was, at this point, you know, that was seven years ago. Um, I, haven't, I haven't smoked since then and I found a way to kind of incorporate a lot of the tools of of health and lifestyle into both my businesses uh, and restaurants and in my own personal life. And um, I'm incredibly lucky. Um, my, my kids are, f- are fascinating because they figured out that I would skip the restaurants at night. They would play sports. And so my older son, um, he played baseball for the sole purpose because I would come to games and coach. Um, that was how he got me out of the restaurants at night. And my daughter's the other. She'll play anything and everything. And he swims. Um, and so now it's seven years later, um, I do a combination of whether it's high intensity training or weightlifting or I'll go run. You know, if, if you were to tell me tomorrow, Hey, let's go do it half marathon. I would just say, okay, and let's go do it. Um, same for lifting kind of all these other things. I'm, I'm, I joke that I'm all in like whatever it is, you just, you know, you do it. And at the restaurants, we've managed to kind of have a slow encouragement of it. We do at Parkside downtown, we do a yoga class on Tuesdays taught by one of our staff, one of our team. At Olive in June on Thursdays, every they rotate the weeks. We have another team member who teaches yoga, and so she teaches yoga at Olive in June, um, which is pretty unique and fun. They kind of all the restaurants kind of split by area and show up. I have staff now who, whether it's members of the Y or who I work out with at my gym, and um, other ones who are rock climbing and and. The way we found, at least I found, to really encourage it is you just bring it up. You know, you talk about it. So in pre-shift, when when the human nature at the restaurant is to be like, you know, what'd you do last night? We talk about the bike ride that they went on. Mm-hmm. We talk about the rock, you know, the rock climbing trip they want to do, why they're quitting smoking so they can save the money to go climb this mountain. Um, you know, we, we encourage our staff to take off and travel and grow. Um, all the cooks get paid to be gone for a week to either work on a farm or another restaurant. The servers tend to have, we have very kind of generous time for them to grow and travel and experience. And it's been incredibly rewarding to create this kind of community um, of hard work, this community of, of, of food and business and all these things, but also to realize that they're all kind of interconnected by people and their own experiences with health. Um, at, at this point, um, I work out, I don't know how many times a week, three, you know, three to five. I go through cycles like anybody. Uh, my son swims and my daughter plays everything and my wife works out. And, um, one of the first ways that I looked at fitness and health was as an opportunity to date my wife because I'd, I'd never seen her at night. And so we would go work out and get smoothies. Um, so it's kind of funny. Was this, was this your plan? I mean, did you set out? Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be a restaurant. 
entrepreneur or mogul. I'm going to own multiple restaurants. And like, did you envision a big company? You know, or or you know, how have things maybe changed from what you had in mind? Uh, they say, you know, yeah. God to laugh, make a plan, right? Or right. No, it's it, it's always a combination of those things. And so, you know, one restaurant led to another, and different consulting and different projects. And at, at different times, we kind of. I tried to make these decisions that we were going to become a big company. And um, we made these decisions to be like, you know, we're going to be this huge company. And then you start to realize over time, that's not really who, who we're going to be. It's not really who I am. And it's not even necessarily who, how I want it to be operated. And so it's always this combination of a little bit and take back, a little bit of take back and baby steps. And so the restaurants, are very different culturally, by location, by style. And when we first would open a new one, we had this mentality that we would run them all as a collective. But that's not really how they work. They're small groups of people who are dedicated in their own unique way. And so I've actually scaled them, scaled back of that overall kind of management structure with the realization that they really are unique. You know, it's one thing to have, you know, combined accounting or for me to come in and talk about food, but, but the overall management of them that, you know, it's really the people who are, who are serving every day, who are, who are interested in wine who are pouring the wine. Mm -hmm. And it's not this overarching management structure of just down, down, down. And so we had, we actually started to get from a management perspective, very big and have since realized that we're better off with less. That was kind of this own realization. And so from a back office standpoint, we manage it, you know, pretty efficiently and feel like this, I don't want to say big company, but ultimately we want each of the restaurants to operate independently, to have ownership by the people who are making decisions inside of them for all the employees and especially the managers there to feel empowered for the chefs to take real ownership in the food and, and, and the culture. Um, and so it's been really interesting. My, you know, my vision has always been just to create food and to make people feel rewarded and emotionally fulfilled and to have seen it grow, um, has been pretty special. Um, and you know, I, I don't know if that means in terms of continuing to grow. I, I, it's hard to always fathom it. So I joke that, um, I just go to meetings and somehow you end up at a meeting, somehow something happens. Um, sometimes it ends up with a new restaurant. Sometimes it ends up with consulting. And sometimes you learn that you don't want to open another restaurant um, or be involved in something. But but it's important. So no, it's good. It's it's good to hear, and I, I can relate in, in the manner that you know with with the gym that I own, and one of them right now being very different from my core business. Um, we just went through an exercise very similar where we had a lot of independent contractors you know, that were coming right. into coming in to coach classes, coming in for an hour here, an hour there, coach classes, versus say, making more of a connection you know, mm -hmm. to our clients and that being a little bit more vested in what we're doing. And are we better off with a smaller, if you will, more controlled full-time staff that is really passionate about what we're doing that can work all areas of the facility, front of house, back house, and really be impactful versus, you know, talented people but they were coming in after work in between things side gig coaching here coaching there and, and we had to start looking at this and going okay well what's what's really better for the culture and the character of this of this business um, who am I what do I what do I want what do, what do I want my spaces to be mm -hmm. you know what 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 defines 
what defines them and defines you as you know and I think you're right. You can't. It's very challenging. You can't run everything the same way. I mean, I go to Inns Group, where, and we're 110 people, and we're very buttoned up and very corporate, and that's what we do in insurance and risk management, and that doesn't fly, you know, right. in in a boutique fitness studio. Right. And you got, and it takes you a little while to to learn that too. Um, so I guess in in, in any business. Uh, so I think um, I think uh, uh, having kids, at least for me, has been. Um, incredibly educational for learning how to deal with staff, learning how to deal with people, um, learning how to communicate because it forces you to communicate in a way that you wouldn't before. Um, you know, as a chef, it's just easy to yell. But as a parent, you realize that yelling doesn't always accomplish what you want. Mm-hmm. You have to find a different way to articulate, to push, to pull, to manipulate, to do all these things. And it also doesn't feel so final. You know, as a as a as a as a, as a chef, it's it's a manager for any of us. You know, these decisions and these communications that we have, it's so you know people take it so serious because it all is such a big deal. But you realize as a parent that you know you yell at your kid one day and you love them the next, so it doesn't really matter. You know, the goal is to get to the end, to make good, to, to get it all done right. That's all that really matters. And um, with the restaurants, it's very similar, um, especially managing people. We always joke about it. Because, you know, your job when you become a manager is ultimately the adult in the room. That's it. <laughs> Nothing more. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and you know, fun, funny in, in the regard that, that I coach my boys' teams. Right. And, and I enjoy, love coaching uh, whatever it is that they want to play. Right. Whether I'm, Same thing. Whether I'm great at the sport, you know, have a background yeah. in the sport or not. But the idea is, you know, love being out there, love, love coaching and managing those teams. And, and kind of the joke in our house a little bit is my wife will say, you know, if you were talking to the people in your business and managing the people the same way that you manage the kids, mm-hmm. that's what you need to do because you have to be that much more understanding. As you said, you've got to look at not everybody can be managed exactly, you know, can be managed the same way. You may have a stellar shortstop and the kid wants to be managed this way and then poor guy in right field needs a totally different approach and you start thinking about it differently than when it's a business and when it's a group of kids. Okay. Maybe if I can combine these two skill sets, right. we may be able to create something pretty pretty special from an environment standpoint mm-hmm. that sometimes gets lost in the, the business operations right. of, of it all. So I think it's helping you know, keep me John Wooden, grounded. John mm-hmm. Wooden talks about in his book, he says, you don't talk to a walk-on in Kareem Abdul-Jabbar the same. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it just seems so obvious when you say you don't treat, you know, you don't treat everyone the same. And instead of it being a hindrance, it's actually okay. And in fact, it's better. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think you, you had asked earlier some of the harder things of running a, uh, a business. And a large thing is that um, realizing that most of the people that I interact with are only responsible for themselves in life because they haven't made the transition to spouses, mm-hmm. to kids. Right. And that's always a very interesting perspective of the world because it's so myopic. And the minute those things change, you become and see everything differently. But that's, I think, also is that with, with everything, as we were talking about health as well. You know, my father passed away when I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a big smoker also. Mm-hmm. Um, I myself smoked for years until we get to the point of now I'm married and I'm about to have a kid and my father passed away from this. Well, what am I thinking? You know, and, and the light bulb goes off and you start thinking about right. it. You're going you're gonna make to those, make those changes. And, and the same thing as you get older and you've got responsibilities and you're at a different stage of your life. And I'm sure you have a large percentage of your staff that is not, 
there yet. They're not. They're not there yet. Mm-hmm. And, and and it's responsibility and kind of privilege to, to help get as many of them there. Right. As as we're as we're able to do that. Mm-hmm. One of the things that um, that I've found at the restaurants and some of the ways that we tend to be the most successful with kind of sharing this conversation of kind of food and health and all those things is we don't ever force it. Um, same with my kids. Um, you know, if I tell my daughter to eat spinach, it's a gag and spit out of them. It's uncomfortable. But if I puree it in a smoothie, it's perfect, right? Mm-hmm. It's why have the argument or why have the discussion? Just let it be right. And, you know, we do the same thing at the restaurant. So, you know, now we have so many of our clients that are gluten-free, as mm-hmm. an example. So uh, at Olive and June, where we make all of our own handmade pasta, we have, you know, we have a corn alternate for those that want to not have you know, gluten and we don't think anything about it we just we just solve it you know mm-hmm. we do um, at, at Parkside and you know we'll find a way to do all the same food with adjustment whether it's no butter no cream or whether it's dealing with allergens mm-hmm. um, at the backspace we have a regular client who comes in and brings her own cashew cheese for us so that we can do all the pizzas that she likes with cashew cheese because she's allergic to dairy um, and so as we have different guests who have expectations and needs for food and for environment, we just solve them. We don't even think about it anymore. The same way we use so many farms and ranchers. We don't think about it. You know, it's not what you put on the menu. It's just, mm-hmm. you just, you're encouraging and finding solutions to make people happy um, and to give them quality food that's healthy, that's nutritious, that's handmade um, in an environment that, that's culturally fulfilling. Um, that's a very, that's a, a very open-minded, very flexible mindset and attitude to it that not always prevalent in, in the restaurant business. Yeah. Um, yeah. Has, has that always been you or again? Has that been an evolution of being, you know, again, a, a, a father now, uh, an operator of multiple concepts, a businessman of saying, hey, right. if we don't give the people what they want, then fuck. For me, it's always been based on my mom. My mom's a vegetarian to this day. So, you know, she, I grew up that way. I didn't eat meat. I always joke that um, Texas public schools is why I eat meat now. <laughs> um, but, but ultimately, my mother still doesn't eat meat. So at all the restaurants, there's ways to make and be very fulfilled without eating meat. You know, how, mm-hmm. how can I cook for you or for another guest if my mom can't come in and be happy? Sure. And so it's kind of that same mentality for her that it's translated into the rest. And, and since our primary goal is to make people happy, we don't care what that means. If that means cooking with or without or adding extra or cooking to a more well-done temp, I mean, ultimately, our goal is to make people happy. And so that culture and that idea runs through everything. Um, during South by Southwest, which Parkside is in the middle of downtown, you know, and mm-hmm. hundreds of thousands of people all over the world, it's overwhelming the amount of business and the people we do. And we have every year for the past going on nine years now, we have a woman that flies in from LA. She gives us a printed up allergy list that is laminated because she's so allergic to so many things she'll die. And we effectively cook her two meals a day for five days of different things. Wow. And we haven't killed her yet. So she comes back every year. And she trusts you now. And she trusts us. Mm-hmm. And so it's, you know, it's, it, it's that, it's the mentality and the chefs don't even think twice about it. You know, there's no hesitation you know, of, of what the solution is. The solution is to do something that fits and makes people happy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, we don't even think about it. You know, and now at this point, everyone just 
it, the expectation is there. So, you know, as we deal with dietary challenges, as we deal with di- or choices, right? Challenges and choices, because they're, they're both and they happen everywhere. Mm-hmm. Or people who are, are hypernutritious, we find a way to make it work. We don't think about it. Whether it's in the banquets that we do, at the event center we have, whether it's on the, you know, whether it's in the middle of a Friday night of 300 people, we just find a way, both from a service, a kitchen, and a management staff. Um, and, and it just has kind of been a natural evolution. You know, you're asking how things evolve for me um, and our newest project that we're opening is called Hugo. And it is a small juice bar, smoothies and grab and go. And it has been a direct correlation of where I am in my life. And as I you know, mentioned earlier, we always cook what we like to eat and mm-hmm. what inspires us. Well, now I find my life in transition all the time whether it's going between soccer games, between meetings, sure. trying to eat healthy, being in a car, not wanting, you know, same for my kids and my wife. And so, you know, what does that mean? You know, it doesn't mean I go sit for a two hour lunch anymore. It means I'm eating, standing up in the kitchen, or it means I'm in between a soccer game or it's a late basketball game and we need to get something really, really fast. Mm-hmm. And that evolution was for us was hugo. Just juice, just simple fresh juice, and you know, my mom, um, my mom has done it for my dad every day since I was a little kid. Every morning, she makes him fresh juice, apple and bee, you know, carrot and ginger, or some variation thereof, and 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 that realization of of what it is, and 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 how that kind of keeps them, you know, connected, and part of it, it has transitioned for me to the way I think a little bit. And, you know, we do smoothies for the kids and we put kale in it so that mm-hmm. my daughter who eats no vegetables will get kale. And we're sneaking stuff in all the time. You know, the old joke about doing ground vegetables in lasagna or all these tricks. And so what we what we realized is, is that for me and for a lot of people in, that, that I'm involved in through, whether it's through friendship, through sports, through parents at school, through fitness, through the restaurants, everybody is kind of in this motion all the mm-hmm. time. And so at, at Hugo... We kind of have made it to where we can build and shrink snacks and where you can have full meals or snacks, but everything is healthy. Everything is home prepared. It's all using uh, organic and local when available. Um, the juices are very simple, very efficient. And same with the smoothies with the gold being that it's just kind of quick. So two questions on that, because you know, it made me think of two things. One, from a business standpoint, Mm-hmm. As your life changes and you and you acknowledge it leads you to a concept like Hugo, um, you go back and look at your existing establishments and concepts and say, okay, there must be other people in this similar situation. Right. So are we able to, again, maintain or still thrive and excel at what we're doing here with this changing culture of maybe people that are moving faster and not sitting down for lunch right. as often? You know, pay attention to, to that with, with that hat on. And then the second is... Okay, there are juice bars out there. There are other places to grab things on the go. Um, you're saying, I'm going to throw my hat in the ring and I can do it better, right? Or, or, or different. Right, or different, or you can... And, and that kind of, again, fearlessness is an, or, or, or a different take on it that makes you say, okay, I'm going to go into... Potentially, you know, a crowded marketplace. But every, I mean, every, you're in a crowded marketplace right. and everything that you've done. But what makes you say... Yep. Okay. Another, another, not just another juice place, but we're going to go in this category now. What I, what I have found, and I, I use it very much on a personal level. So my wife is from a small town in West Texas. 
she grew up without vegetables. You know, it was very canned, frozen food based. Um, and most of the world is that way, at least in America. That's really how, mm-hmm. you know, it is. And so, you know, while you and me will talk about micro and hypernutrition and we'll talk about uh, sugar levels throughout the day and how it correlates to working out and, and all these really, really unique parts of diet. Most people do not. Yeah. Most people, most people, it really is what's the fastest, what's the cheapest, what's on their way home, what tastes good, what their kids will like. And so when we looked at this, we didn't look at it. And it's sad to say, we didn't look at it from a micronutritious level. That was never our goal. And so I have a lot of great friends who have unbelievable um, grab and go places. And, you know, if you want to go and count calories, if you want to focus on losing weight and meal planning, they're awesome. And in fact, I go eat at them all the time and they're my, they're my direct competitors. And I have another friend who has an unbelievable successful juice and smoothie bar. Um, and it's, you know, it's a little bit, you know, there's a thousand different drinks and it's super awesome. Everything is customizable, but it's overwhelming emotionally. And so what we did is we just made it very simple. It's just a few things, very clean, feels very much like coming home. Um, it's not so focused on being the healthiest. It's not so focused on being um, the most customizable. It's really about thinking of the smoothies and the juices like a chef would and creating really good, interesting drinks that you want to just come back for. And it's about creating food that just tastes good throughout your day. And instead of it being so focused on those other layers, we think we've really allowed it to be something kind of unique and special. Um, feel very different than what's in the marketplace. And it wasn't, wasn't the intent to be different. It was just kind of how we thought of it. Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't like chaos in my life. I don't know if you can relate to this because of work and business, there's so mm-hmm. much going on. So I like things to have a sense of place. Sometimes that's hard to find in smoothie bars because they're so in juice bars because they're, um, sometimes a little more hippy dippy and a little mm-hmm. bit more unique and the staffing is a little bit less caring. And so, um, you know, ours is different. It's very, it feels very different in the way the menu is and the way it's written. You order from your phone and, and um, you know, as you travel throughout your work, how, how much do you end up at places like Starbucks? Man, it's, it's, it's a challenge. Um, it, it's and not in a negative way. It's no, I say it's, it's, in, in gen- it's, it's a challenge. And, you know, for me the same way. And I'm pretty regimented like you. I wake up early and I'll start with my bulletproof coffee in the morning. Right. And then I'll get my workout in. And then I'll come home and then I'll have, you know, right. my breakfast, which is pretty much the same thing every day. And I have my meals delivered to my office so you from, uh, from a chef that makes me eight meals, eight meals a week for five days and the reason she does eight is because I always want to snack in between or right. who knows how hard my workout was and that was a that was a response to when I didn't have food in the office and I'd get hungry and I couldn't afford to leave the office for work mm-hmm. and everything or I didn't have anything or if I left it was costing me time and it was costing me money okay? and I wasn't able to eat the way that I wanted to right. for the reasons and then you get on the road in my business most people don't come to me I go to them so unless you're prepared for that, you are stopping in. What I find, I'll say, I'm sacrificing, and you have I don't. To make choices. And, yes, and and I try to make the best choices, but I ultimately end up disappointed in the choices that I've made based on what's available on that on that path. So you're you're absolutely right, and I'm a creature of habit in a way too, with the way I want to eat 
um, and perform, but at the same time, my wife and I are quite adventurous in wanting to try all types of new places within the schedule we've set up for right. ourselves. You know, like we're clean during the week and then on the weekends, right. I would never come into one of your restaurants and ask for anything different because I want to enjoy it right. as the chef wants it to be and not be that guy at the table. We don't even think of them as mm-hmm. that guy. That's just who, you just take care of people. Mm-hmm. Um, See, I would think of myself as that guy. I, I couldn't <laughs> be that kind of outlier and that's both selfish and, and maybe a little selfless but one Both. in the manner that I really kind of want it to be exactly the way it is fun. And, right and not everything can be about that um, I, I love I, the cheat day yeah exactly <laughs> you know you know I, I know you can relate to this as being uh, you know a husband and a father and being in, in business and you see how you know it, it, you can dedicate you'll dedicate time to something or you'll have you know we have friends who dedicate the time to meal planning mm-hmm. to being that organized but much of the world does not. And so uh, Hugo specifically is just meant to feel welcoming. It's not meant to feel like you're being asked to micro count calories. It's not, feel, it's not meant to feel like you, you're trying to find a meal plan to lose weight. Mm-hmm. It's meant to feel like, hey, it's Tuesday afternoon. And I want to walk out of the office and I want to get a great juice that makes me feel good about myself. And that's it. And from an online ordering platform to the, the space itself. The Greg Shaman Podcast is presented by Inns Group. Inns Group Insurance and Risk Management. Inns Group is ensuring success. For more information, go to innsgroup.net. And also by Rose Studios. Endurance, strength, and mobility equals perfect fitness. For more information, visit rosestudios.com.